Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello to episode 95, Brendan here. And yes, as Mr. Intro Man said, visit vetgurus.com. So I know there's a number of our listeners who uh, send us emails, Mark, and yet they have not visited vetgurus.com because it's a place to go. Where else would you go if you have a spare moment? Nowhere apart from vetgurus.com. And thank you to our sponsors and our Patreon sponsors and our our main sponsors as well. Um Mark, it's been one of those weeks as I was, or days <laughs> as I was talking off air um, before we started recording. And um, I'll tell you what, what is it with guinea pigs and Euroliths, Mark? We have seen so many guinea pigs and we continue to see so many guinea pigs with stones um, in them. And the guinea pig female that I removed a distal urethral Eurolith or urethral lith today, Mark. It was the biggest stone I've seen. It was about one and a half by one centimetre stuck. goodness, that makes my eyes water. It was amazing. And, you didn't um, use the toothpaste technique, did you? Well, let me tell you what I did, Mark. I said to the client, Mark says I'm not allowed to do the toothpaste techniques. And she said, who's Mark? And I said, oh, don't worry about that now. But we'll admit your guinea pig and we will anaesthetise it. We will take, it was a referral case, the local vets had worked it up a bit, um, but I wanted to get some more detailed images there to make sure we didn't have any other issues elsewhere in the urinary tract. So we um, zapped a few um, radiographs to confirm and it was good because there was no bladder stones or kidney stones or any stones anywhere else. And um Originally, what I do with a lot of these, and I think we've spoken about it, Mark, previously, is I, I make a small incision and uh, and then it tends to pop out, um, plus or minus a little bit of toothpaste in, but usually not. Um, but it was such a whopper, this one, that the incision I made over the stone um, did mean I repaired that wound with some pretty fine monofilament interrupted sutures afterwards because typically, and I don't know whether you do this, Mark, um, because it's a pretty small incision um, because those stones aren't particularly big. Usually I I do not suture them closed. Um, I find that they um, they heal up really well. Um, Remarkably well, yeah. Um, And then it's the the usual brainstorming, um, thinking, gee, what do we do to try and prevent this happening? And and, and again, I know we've spoken about it on a previous podcast, but apart from the obvious ones where they're on a crazy diet or there's some association with feeding, you know, these mineral blocks or these over-supplemented um, or poor quality um, pellets or grain mixes, then it's really hard to track down what's happening there. So prevention-wise, they can be um, a bit of a challenge, you know. Um, but Interestingly enough, and I don't know whether you find this, Mark, the ones where they have the urethral stones um, usually do much better um, as, as far as less likely to have recurrence than the ones that have the bladder the bladder stones because of, you know, that's a success with the bladder ones that we go in there, we remove a bladder stone and flush out that bladder um, and then it returns within a few weeks. You know, it's not uncommon for that to happen. But these urethral ones, I think it's much less likely to occur anecdotally i think i've got a bit of a theory that that's uh that the ones that develop um that lifts in the urethra that they're probably producing you know much smaller um liths all the time and they're passing them um so when we radiograph them there's none there and it's uh it may be a functional thing in those um guinea pigs that um that they end up staying in the bladder, getting too big to pass, um, but the the uh, um, the same thing happens once you flush them out. The the um, they recur as they would, I suspect, in all guinea pigs, but um, in particularly yes. individuals, they just remain there rather than um, than washing out as you know half a millimeter, millimeter sized stones. Yes. No. Well. Yes, I, as, as I always say, somebody smarter than me, and me. 
perhaps not smarter than you, yes, um, will manage to to solve this issue at some stage, and they'll be the the guinea pig guru and um, have solved the problem with the the stones. Um, but yeah, it was a massive one, and the yeah the owner was quite impressed, and they took home their little their little souvenir. Um, and as far as I know, she's she's plugging away okay. No pun intended there, Mark. Hopefully not plugged, <laughs> but plugging away um, fairly well. So that's what I've been up to, apart from the fact I've got to visit the dentist tomorrow, and um, that's, as usual, making me a little bit um, toey. And, um, yeah, um, so that's me. Um, what about you, Mark? <laughs> We've been enjoying, uh, like, um, an increase in I – th- I've been feeling – um, more one of the things about working with um, our avian and exotic patients is often we don't shift towards a diagnosis as much as we'd like. We're often treating, you know, broad groups of clinical signs maybe as a syndrome or a group of, you know, uh, uh, treating them palliatively, treating the signs. Um, but I've just been very pleased lately that um, uh, we've been really whacking the ultrasound probe on pretty much every chicken that comes in and we've been um we've certainly been upping the ante with respect to um uh you know picking the cases that we think need to go to surgery picking the cases that um maybe are bad and might not respond to surgery or medical intervention or picking the ones that um, that we do want to just treat medically. I feel, they, they just, I feel good about the ultrasound, Brendan. Okay, so, well, why don't you briefly, we're going to be very brief and punchy this week, as oh, I mentioned. Yeah. And so okay. how do you select, how do you select the ones um, bet- between the, how do you make that decision on based on that ultrasound? Well, the good thing about the ultrasound is it gives us a view of the uh, contents of the abdomen outside the oviduct and ovary, and so we can make a bit of an assessment about whether that's, uh, um, whether, you know, it's all fluid or whether there's loculated pockets of pus or inspissated sterile pus or whether maybe we have changes in the liver that's, uh, that um, is causing acidic fluid um, that's not associated with the reproductive tract. We can look at the um, the contents of the oviduct and um, and make a bit of an assessment about whether we think we've got uh, infectious processes or mural um, tumours, um, and we can make a bit of an assessment of the oviduct, uh, the ovary, um, and uh, um, and particularly last year at our. Uh, UPAV conference, there was a wonderful presentation on uh, indicators of uh, uh, the likely indicators of neoplasia by um, uh, having a look at those, uh, the characteristics of the the follicles and, um, and uh, well, yeah, it's just been, um, I know, it feels good to, to raise the standard. Um, and it's amazing, you know, uh, the number of people that have backyard poultry these days and the passion and and commitment they have to those birds, um, they they you know are true companion animals. Um, we've got lots of photos of the uh, of the backyard flock, you know, resting on a particular perch just outside the window, waiting for the kitchen scraps, and and people really take them to heart. So they they to be able to. Yeah, just be a bit more specific with the diagnosis and and head in a particular direction. I think it's a good thing. Good. Well, you know, you'll have to keep get some statistics going <laughs> for that and record stuff because you need to present at a conference. Um, one of the one of our UPAV conferences, obviously, Mark. You need to um, you need to um, get up there on stage again and um, oh. conquer that stage fright that you have. <laughs> <laughs> Or stage panic, should I say? Um, because once you get once you get going there on stage, Mark, um, <laughs> I still it's have good. Very it's all good. Very, it just seems like yesterday that um, that time that Bob Donnelly was the um, uh, was the uh, moderator, and he literally got out one of those giant sheep uh, shepherd's hooks. And while I was still <laughs> talking, physically dragged me off the um, off the stage because. Uh, well, we all know that Bob runs a very tight ship when it comes to Yes, time. and you've never been the same since, <laughs> have you, Mark? Yes. 
Um, okay, well, let's move on to. I think you wanted to. I did want put to a, a little review. review. Give a little review. Yes, a quick review. I um, I uh, read a book, Brendan. I um, I uh, I must admit to being um, uh, um, affected by uh, popular you know, by social media. Um, and one of the people I follow on Twitter published a book, um, uh, Ginger Gorman, a, an ABC journalist, um, published a book um, about a topic that I sort of have a bit of fascination about. It's uh, called troll hunting. And, um, and it's uh, um, after a particular episode where uh, Ginger herself was, um, was uh, exposed to... Um, you know, waves of internet, of waves of keyboard soldiers who were pretty cruel and, you know, um, scary. Uh, she did the usual journalist thing and unlike me who would, you know, switch every device off and never have anything to do with any other people in any social media sense ever again, um, she sought these people out and asked them about their motivation and, and uh, yeah, it was an, it was an excellent read. It wasn't... Um, wasn't too for the sort of material that it discussed it wasn't it was um you know probably in the in the uh, nature of social media it was it was um it was relatively easy to read and um and sort of jumped around um looking at uh, a number of different aspects rather than sort of being too uh you know uh, scholastic and focused and and uh um, but it, it was well referenced, and um, and I really enjoyed, um, you know, the, the the more detailed approach, the more trying to understand the the uh, the process, which um, which gets to the point where uh, people say some very nasty things online. So you said it affected you, or it had a um, it had a um, it had an effect on you, and. and Elaborate. <laughs> well, when I said that, I meant that I was affected by the advertising that um, kept popping it up in uh, my feed. I was, I try to resist those um, social media exhortations, um, but in this instance, um, being a topic that I was interested in, I, I followed through. And look, to be honest, the the um, I do feel a little bit. I don't know, particularly given some recent stuff in the news, I feel a bit helpless and and. You know, um, uh, uh, not not uh, not a good feeling when it comes to uh, the sorts of um, well, to be blunt, they're they're vile things that are said, and the large number of people that are prepared to say them makes me think of the proportion of them that are prepared to act on them. Um, and, and in Ginger's case, the you know there was a news story um, uh, that she published and. Um, and it uh, uh, it um, offended a church in the southern United States, and the pastor of that church turned the full weight of his church um, to criticising um, this journalist. And um, and then all of a sudden, her her uh, um, pictures of her family and uh, um, you know uh, her house are turned into memes um, by the. You know the sort of people around the church who maybe you know take take a less Christian attitude to it. So yeah, it was a bit and a topic that really interests me, and I still feel a bit hopeless about. But I must admit, I feel a little bit a little bit worse knowing the sorts of things that happen to people, and a little bit better knowing that um, that there's more that can be done, and and the more that we talk about it, I suppose, the more that we understand it, the more likely it is we can do stuff about it. So it was a great book and I give it, uh, let me just quickly work out here, uh, (laughs) 8.6 out of 10. 8.6 out of 10. Somehow I've heard that um, exact number before. Okay, so 8.6 out of 10 for your review, Mark, and you'll have to send me the link so I can put that up on vetgurus.com for the show episode notes if anybody's interested so don't forget to message that over to me um i think we should jump in to a couple of news stories mark um as usual and my first one uh, i found quite 
amusing and fascinating and a bit scary as well. Um, and this is about a man who ran screaming from outside his house in his village in northeastern India, asking help um, from his neighbours. And um, indeed, he needed a bit of help because um, there was a Bengal tiger sleeping on his bed, Mark, an adult female, um, which they think was seeking shelter from the nearby national park where monsoons have been a a big concern there and submerged a large percentage, I think around about 70% of the land area. So it was displaced and it decided it found a nice little spot to have a little nap. And um, yes, um, his man, his name, I don't, I don't know whether I've got his name in this. Um, so the thing I really loved about this story is what how they dealt with it. Um, he contacted the local wildlife authority, and the way they de- dealt with this Bengal tiger was was quite innovative. I think, Mark, um, they tranquilized the tiger, which which makes a lot of sense, which is typically what you do with um, these animals that can be quite threatening. And they waited till nightfall, and then they woke up with lots of fireworks. <laughs> So they let off a heap of firecrackers um, to wake her up from her tranquilized state um, so she would get spooked and then run out of the house. Um, Nothing could go wrong with that plan. It worked. It worked because they cleared the local area and they ensured the neighbourhood and the nearby highway was um, blocked off and clear for her to cross and she ultimately did do so. And she made her way back to dry ground on in the forest. Um, but um, yeah, it's not a technique that I've used before, Mark. I've certainly tranquilised a few um, few wildlife species here in Australia um, that need um, that need that um, for relocation. But no, I haven't thought about um, lighting a. A, a firecracker um, up the cloaca and um, and waking them up um, to get them moving. But um, in this case, it worked very well. Um, and, um, yeah, that's my story. I'm going to leave it at that. They talk a little bit about the monsoons and um, the difficulty they've had with um, some of the, the rainfall that's been happening there where, where they've been getting up to three inches per hour. But, uh, yeah, there you go. And um, like that, how did he – those photos – where the, the Bengal tiger is sitting on his bed. And I don't know, does it look like he's punched a hole through the, the, the wall? Or they, they're, they're scary photos. Yes. Yeah, I reckon that's just after they've tranquilised it. And we we will have a um, a link to that, um, that little article that has those pictures there. Yeah, I reckon. I mean, maybe perhaps he, he, he was in a little village where they... And I saw a fair bit of this in in India, where you know there's a lot of poverty there, and his his home may have been a bit of a shanty shack um, there. So yeah, but um, yeah, good on the wildlife authorities for thinking of that. Maybe it was um, firecracker season, and they'd purchased a whole lot, and they um, they wanted to um, test them. So there you go. That's my first news story, Mark. Now your first one um, is again about some creatures, and I've got no segue to it. But <laughs> I away love you go. the way you search for a segue. Um, the, my story is about the um, the dozens of creatures who were thought to be extinct or uh, very very rare were found in the lost city in the jungle deep in the jungles of the Honduras, um, and um, researchers there uh, um, visited um, the, the site um, within, the, within the Mosquitia rainforest known as the Lost City of the Monkey God, um, and they were shocked, Brendan, to find um, the just a huge number of species um, that were either... Um, well, extinct or, or or very very rare, and it points to um, the uh, remoteness, the the uh, pristine nature of the ecosystem, um, and the you know tropical rainforests with uh, huge numbers of species, and um, and and uh, large numbers of those species were were endangered or thought to be extinct. Um, the team documented nearly two hundred species of um, birds. Um, 94 species of butterfly, um, 56 uh, reptiles and amphibians, 56 species of reptiles and amphibians, and they also got large mammals, pumas, ocelots, jaguars, um, um, and um, 
geez, the photos in this article I, I mentioned here, they they look like they've set a whole bunch of these um, exotic jungle animals up on palm palm leaves and taken excellent uh, photographs of them. Um, but I particularly like the photograph of the uh, yes. um, plumed basilisk. Um, they really nailed that photo and, uh, geez, you, just finding that alone would make the trip worthwhile, I reckon. Um, but it does, well, uh, the, one, the one thing I about these stories, go on. Yes, no, I don't know why they didn't invite us, Mark, because at the start of the article they talk about a SWAT team of scientists and um, surely they'd include you and I. The vet gurus as, a SWAT, as part of the veterinary SWAT team. I think so. Yes. You find it difficult to understand why they couldn't find a spot for us on the team. Um, but um, I do I always worry about these stories, uh, particularly as they make their way from uh, reports in the literature to the more... Um, the more uh, general media, they sort of give you a bit of a false sense of security each time they say, oh, new area, very remote, lots of um, species that are very rare or previously considered extinct. Um, they, it sort of, sort of gives you this idea that, oh, there is, things are going to be okay because these, uh, these species are not extinct. And they give us hope that some of the other species that are extinct might turn up again. But... Um, I'm here to crush all hope, Brendan. It's bad. The world is in a bad place. And just because we find a couple of species that are in trouble doesn't mean we're in a good place, which leads me on to your next story. It, it does, the insect apocalypse, Mark, um, and the fact that Ohio has lost one-third of its butterflies in 21 years. And it's probably not alone. And um, this article is talking about the importance and the, this, the lack of research in in um, insects, Mark. And um, they talk, it's a study published this month in the in which he, which was July, I think, in two thousand nineteen, uh, in the journal Plus One, where they examined twenty four thousand butterfly surveys conducted by citizen scientists across Ohio from 1996-2016. And they estimated the population trends for 81 species and the results were a little bit scary, Mark, that they think the state, state's overall butterfly abundance fell 2% per year, leading to a decline of 33% in just 21 years. And even though it's just limited to one group of insects, they think it extends way beyond just this particular species and, and butterflies, Mark, and that there's declines in lots of common species that are probably happening that we do not realise um, because we're not doing the surveys. Well, I think that the, there's a couple of topics in this one that um, are close to my heart, Brendan. The first one is um, citizen science, that surveys conducted by interested people. And, you know, we've talked about um, uh, the Frog ID app and, and a number of other um, uh phone-based citizen science and, and this is a, another bit of um, uh, publication that uh, depends on that data. And the other one is that it talks about the topic of insect-free windshields that um, you know, I remember going on road trips with my folks when I was a little tyke and um, crikeys, we'd have to pull over sometimes and give the windscreen a bit of a gentle scrub and clean the bugs off it. And yet these days, Brendan... Not so much, I don't think. We uh, we probably, I mean, that's a uh, it's an interesting transect to have a look at. Um, but I, so what you've con you've contributed one point five percent to the decline of insects possibly. in your region when you're when your family. Um, yes, um, that's a very um, astute observation there, Mark. Yes, I must admit. So what do you think is happening there? Is that when we've got lots, we've got much yeah. less insects or that the windscreens these days are designed? More aerodynamic. Um, no, I don't think that's true. I think yes. the insect apocalypse <laughs> is uh, resulting in far, far fewer insects to splat on the windscreen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Remember the days when you would fill up the car with petrol or, or gas, as they say in the US, and yeah. somebody would actually come over and fill up the tank for you um, instead of this self-service stuff, Mark. Um, those were the days, and there was no such. And I remember, the, remember those days when they first started bringing in those self-service um, 
self-service um, oh, petrol stations or gas stations, and, and it was amazing. And desirable. Little did we know. That's right. Yeah, this reminds me of the time when we got electricity in our street. <laughs> with, speaking of, um, Enough of that. Well, um, reminiscing. About, um, yes. Speaking of the insect apocalypse, um, I, I was um, – very pleased. You know, it's, it's one of my um, favourite, once again, my little topics that I like to return to. Um, uh, grasshoppers and silkworms have antioxidant capacity similar to fresh orange juice. Uh, there's been a recent, recent study that suggests. Um, sure, most of them, um, most of the, uh, the animals that... Um, but we're, oh, well, it's, it's about eating insects, Brendan. It is a thing that I keep returning to. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, in our current system of agriculture, um, there's far too much, to, you know, to get a burger. There's far too much weight and the far, far too much um, uh, commitment of energy waste in the process. Um, and I think that uh, in the future, very, in the very near future, um, those uh, protein sources which do have um, uh, six legs at some stage in their life cycle will become a significant part of our diet. Um, and it's interesting to see that research is looking at um, uh, at the other, you know, besides the protein, um, just having a look at the antioxidant power and the, uh, the quality of the oils and fats in those um, food sources. Um, I think that it is almost inevitable that um, that uh, insects will become a vastly significant, vastly more significant portion of our uh, dietary intake. Um, this article reports that um, at least two billion people—that's a quarter of the world's population—regularly already eat insects. Um, uh, so I, I don't uh, for 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 a significant part of the population of the world that's already, you know that. Uh, barrier may already be broken. Um, so I, I just think as the the uh, efficiency of farming them, as the cost of uh, production comes down, as they presented in, um, I suppose, more acceptable uh, forms for Western palates, um, I think that um, edible insects will become an increasing part of our diet. And, uh, and just now, knowing that... Um, that they uh, have these antioxidants and uh, other nutrients that are, are positive besides just the quality of the, the protein is going to be a great thing, I think, Brendan. So two, uh, two questions, Mark. Um, one, they talk about these water-soluble extracts that are taken or made from these, these in insects. Um, have you seen what they look like? Is it just a, a gloop? Um, and have you tried the water-soluble extracts, and have you eaten some of these species of insects before? And no, if so... No and no. What do they taste like? Um, I would be interested, you know, you know that um, that I have a vegetarian diet. Um, we have troubled the, uh, the, the uh, wait staff at a number of the restaurants you and I have eaten at to ensure that, um, that my dietary preferences are acceptable um and i haven't yet uh stretched the limit but um but yeah i i, I um i probably just on principle um would give these things a go um and i certainly haven't tried the uh the gloop as you so eloquently put it um and uh but uh, yeah I, I i reckon um i would be keen to uh to give a, a deep fried grasshopper a bit of a munch I will report back when I do. Excellent. And there is one other one other comment or sentence in this article, Mark, that um, that is very dear to our hearts, and it it mentions that ladybugs fart, <laughs> Mark. Um, and for those of you who have not listened to all our episode, our episode number five was called "Do Rabbits Fart," and we went through a few different. Um, species and, and spoke about whether or not they fart or not and there is even a book that you can purchase which i did and i still haven't shown that to you mark um that says do do animals fart or do something fart i forget what it's called um the actual um title of it but um it's quite a amusing book there so yes 
So we, we, we can't get away from fart jokes even with, um, even with our insects, Mark. Um, so there you go, four very um, non-quick um, news stories that we've gone through there, Mark. And um, I think we need to jump into our, our, our main topic, which is following on, following on from last week's topic. So it's another avian topic. And you suggested this one as well. Thank you very much. And it is um, part of our care of or care for species, our basic care species, um, which we're slowly going through some of the more commonly kept unusual pets. And this week we're going to cover budgerigars. So why did you want to choose budgies, Mark? I wanted to talk about them because they're um, particularly popular. We get to see quite a lot of them and, um, and, and in the way of these things, despite their popularity, um, I, I think not a lot of people know uh, a lot of detail about them. And so um, so I think sometimes their quality of life in captivity can be compromised um, by the fact that um, people may not know all about them despite their popularity. Is that sort of, you know, familiarity breeds contempt and we sort of think that... Um, because they survive so well, the desert birds that they are, they do pretty well under pretty horrific circumstances um, uh, that um, that uh, any sort of husbandry will be okay. And we can definitely do better than just any sort of husbandry. So I thought it'd be good to have a talk about their basic care and maybe just touch quickly, because I know you want to be punchy, on a couple of the common problems that we see with them. Yes, absolutely. Good choice. Now, is... Is is the budgie the most popular pet bird in the think, world? Or what would be I the most popular? Is. I think it outranks the canary. I think the canary comes in as second. Um, uh, they're often, you know, we call them budgerigars here in Australia, and I think they they're probably known well by that name around the world. But um, they're often called the shell parakeet or um, just parakeets. Um, in other parts of the world, um, parakeet being a bit of a generic name that could refer to uh, a whole bunch of small parrots, and so I like budgerigar. Um, it's a good name. Yes. So let's get stuck into it. So basic setup for them. What do you recommend? Um, I like, um, there's a couple of things. I like the cage to be as large as possible. People often um, keep them in, um, you know, relatively small, maybe. 300 or 400 millimetre long cubes um, uh, with uh, made of wire with a couple of perches in them and a couple of um, uh, feed dishes and a couple of plastic um, toys dangling from them. And um, and I think uh, that belies the, the potential ability for these birds to, to, you know, in the wild they fly absolutely vast distances and um, and they burn huge amounts of energy. And uh, so providing them with the largest cage possible that encourages them to, to fly quite regularly. Um, and even uh, particularly if they're um, well-trained, if they're comfortable with people, letting them out of their uh, cage, their enclosure, and um, letting them have free flight around the house, I think that's uh, an excellent um, uh, husbandry uh, um, uh, principle to apply. Yes, and we spoke a little bit last week about um, cage mates or lack thereof. Is there any particular recommendation you you have for keeping a, a budgerigar on its own or, or not? I, 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 it's well. Let me just preface what I'm about to say with the um, comment that um, that. Uh, Obviously, once you put a number of budgerigars together, they they are um, a desert species who will breed opportunistically. And so, if you have a small flock of them, um, then they, they, you know, you'll definitely be dealing with reproductive activity. But having said that, um, I think that's part goes with the territory. I think it's very difficult, very very difficult to provide these very smart birds and very social birds who literally um, uh, I've had the good fortune to observe them in the wild and whether it's flying, whether it's uh, foraging, they tend to do things in a flock um, and that flock is a very, you know, significant um, 
social connection for them. And I like the idea that when we keep them as domestic pets, we satisfy that social urge and keep them in, in groups. I like keeping them in groups, Brendan. So a group. So what would you what would you suggest? Say if I'm I, I'm really keen. I've listened to Mark on his podcast, and I need to get out and buy a few budgies. How many do I get, Mark? Well, you definitely need to get a pair. They they are, are sufficiently social that you absolutely have to have at least two. But I reckon um, that you know some number about six or eight tends to um, deflect some of the you know if you just have two and they're compatible, that's great. Um, if one, you know, a male bird might be more enthusiastic about some aspects of life than the female and that could cause potential for injury. The male might bite blood quills or nails um, and do damage to a female, particularly if there's just the two of them. Um, uh, they definitely are well-adjusted, well-socialised birds who cope um, together as two birds without any others. But I definitely think yes. that um, uh, spreading that social interaction across a group of other birds, maybe three or four pairs, uh, is a healthier thing for them. So what do we feed them? Oh, the old chestnut. You don't feed them chestnuts. <laughs> um, you, they are. It's a bit of a chestnut because there is some... Uh, there's some controversy about this, Brendan. There's definitely some controversy. And so um, some very prominent, high-profile, on-the-net veterinarians who uh, deal with birds um, promote the idea that budgerigars should only be fed seed. But I think uh, the consensus opinion... Um, the, the, the ideal opinion is that um, they should definitely have access to seed. Um, they shouldn't be fed solely a pelleted diet, but a, a diet that's composed of, um, of seeds and of a, a high-quality uh, formulated pellet. Um, that that uh, probably provides the the uh, you know the foundation for the diet. Um, I do think you've got to be very careful about the seed mixes you use. I think um, those uh, high oil and uh, high energy seeds um, they are definitely more nutritionally one dimensional, um, and the birds will love them and and hoe into them. But I think uh, trying to get a mixture of um, the millets and um, uh, and some of the other canary seed, for example, um, that mixture of seeds um, more closely uh, approximates the complex seeds that they eat in the wild, and mimics the size of them as well. Yes, and uh, so yeah, there's a. I th um, do you want to make a comment about the the amount to feed? You know, oh, uh, good, good, uh, and I think the manner of feeding. I think yes. Um, Whacking it in that little plastic D cup at the end of the the uh, cage and blowing off the husks once a day—that's to me an unacceptable way of feeding them. I think uh, trying to tee up some form of um, you know the, the for your average you know, budgerigars being a domestic species range significantly in weight and. Our wild budgerigars here in Australia probably average something like 27 or 28 grams. Most of the domestic birds we get to see are a little bit heavier and probably weigh between 34 and, I don't know, 48 grams. And uh, obviously those um, the English um, lines are markedly different, kept separate from the Australian birds for many years because of... Um, because of export restrictions, um, those birds are much, much bigger and often reach 60 or 70 grams um, in body weight. And look, I think all those birds benefit from a little bit of um, care, maybe only feeding them something of the order of um, half a teaspoon, um, something of the order of three or four grams of food morning and evening, and mixing that food into some... You know, something that forces them to forage. I think we have talked about in other podcasts uh, getting a kitty litter tray with um, uh, the recycled newspaper kitty litter and mixing the seed and pellets amongst that. Yes. Um, uh, uh, mixing it even with amongst uh, leaf litter or um, uh, the other sorts of things, uh, crunched up bits of wood, um, trying to wedge things into pine cones or... Um, 
bottle brush seed heads, those sorts of things to force the birds to expend some effort and mind power to look for the food rather than just sitting it in a, in a D-cup at the end of the enclosure. Yes, and how common is it for people to overfeed their animals generally, let alone the birds? But um, I'd expect that you'd say probably, what, close to 100% of the client, new client, new bird owners that are, that are bringing in their bird for a health check would be um, just filling up the bowl. And, they're de- and it's desperately upsetting because they are trying to do the right thing. They're, they're committed to, you know, and they're often, you'll have the same experience as me, Brendan, you... I go through this discussion with them and they, they, their face starts to go pale and they get a little bit hangdog around the shoulder because they've been putting so much effort in and here I am disapproving of the things that they're doing. Um, and so that's why I think it's good that we get this information out there and, and as veterinarians be advocates for, um, for, you know, not the traditional thing, going a little bit, um, just going a little bit... Um, you know, better for the bird, making a plan that's better for the bird. Yes. And speaking of diet, the only other thing I want you to comment on, Mark, is supplements. So how many, you know, they, they're all these 1,001 different supplements that clients are often told to add, well, again, um, let's just stick to budgies um, or budrigas, um, from the pet shop or the breeder, feed a bit of this, add a bit of this, add, add some iodine, add this, add that, add multivite, add calcium. What's your recommendation? Look, I, I think that a, um, a good quality seed with an equal volume of a good quality formulated um, pelleted or crumbled diet that constitutes about 80% of their intake and then, um, then the remaining 10, 20% of their intake is a variety of um, leafy greens and seed heads and um, and whatnot. Um, if they're having that sort of a diet, look, I, I, um, I don't think, probably the only thing I think is a useful additive is that um, uh, I do see the birds get a considerable amount of pleasure crunching up the soft um matrix of the cuttlefish bones um, that uh, that are put in their cage. And I think that um, particularly those female birds have such a higher requirement for that short period of time where they're laying eggs that that's not a bad additive. I don't know that I'm entirely, um, you know, you know how my basic philosophy is that um, a good, healthy, well-rounded diet should need no supplements. And uh, and I think um, if you're patching up a diet with uh, um, forms of uh, vitamin or mineral supplements, then that's a sign you're not feeding them properly. Yes. So we feed it the right thing. What about water? Any any tips or tricks for, for um, supplying the water for a budgie? Look, I think um, that... Uh, they the because budgery gar is um, uh, reported to be a word that uh, ref, that um, indicates um, that the birds don't drink. Um, it's an Aboriginal. It's derived from uh, apocryphally. Uh, um, the myth goes that the word's derived from an Aboriginal word, which means bird that doesn't drink. This is not true. Um, and while in the wild they can survive for a short period of time on metabolic water, and so maybe don't, you know, like many desert species, they can survive for a period of time without water. I don't think that's an acceptable thing for them to to do in captivity. Um, and we do provide them with um, fresh, clean, um, unadulterated water in a, um, you know, in a... Uh, um, in a, in a relatively large, um, often sealed, you know, ceramic bowl that's sealed or um, something that doesn't uh, provide a big surface area for uh, biofilm to form. Try and set the water up in a spot where the birds aren't necessarily going to perch above it and, uh, and land their droppings in it. And be prepared to change it because the birds definitely are pretty keen to hop in and have a bit of a bath on a regular basis and, um, and so it's a good thing to... Uh, to um, change it regularly. I reckon it's a good thing too if you do have that small flock um, that uh, there are occasions when dominant birds will maybe not uh, express their domination by, you know, physically fighting but just hunt, 
birds away from various stations in the the cage and particularly a single water station can be a little bit of a focal point for social um, interaction that might be negative. So a couple of uh, waterers is a good idea. So we fed it, we've watered it. What else do we need to do? I was going to say we need to provide it with things to do. Um, and I think this is one of the, the most important things is, um, is this uh, whole concept of environmental enrichment. And I do, you know, the, the, uh, the toys um, that are traditionally placed in budgery uh, cages, um, they, well, I don't want to sound too harsh, but they just don't cut it. Um, they're one-dimensional. They're, um, you know, they uh, stimulate very specific uh, parts of the budgerigar's behaviour and they excessively stimulate it. Um, and so I like the idea of a broad range of, um, of things for them to do, um, as we talked about before, um, foraging for food, but also um, just pieces of plant, particularly the, the, um, the, the follicles of the bottle brush, the casuarina um, seed cones, the, those sorts of things that, um, that provide them with a reward once they explore through them and also um, you know, stimulate them to, uh, to um, explore more. That's their, their nature in the wild is to spend significant amounts of time um, exploring things. And isn't it amazing seeing a huge flock of budgies in the wild, Mark? And I'm sure you've been fortunate enough and I've been lucky enough to see them. They're just amazing seeing that huge wave of, you know, the the sky almost darkens, doesn't it, like the apocalypse when you see these hundreds or thousands of budgies um, flying free um, in their huge numbers. And the distance they cover, it's... um. You know, if you've only had experience with the birds in cages or ovaries, you just don't, don't, cannot uh, understand the 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 um, the way these wild birds just treat vast distances as um, no particular problem. And um, yeah, it, it is eye-opening to see them in the wild. So we've got some happy little budgies in a cage, Mark, if there's such a thing, <laughs> and they've been fed and watered and you're providing them lots of environmental enrichment. What sort of, um, what sort of requirements do you recommend for um, a hide there, a little sleeping area or a breeding, a little breeding box? Um, any, any particular tips for, for that for a budgie? Yeah, it's a um, it's a good question, Brendan, because with many species and budgerigars are one of the avian species that uh, that we see in this situation. Um, I think it is wise to provide them with a, a safe roost, um, but I actually think it's a good thing to try not provide them with a nest site. Um, and there is a couple of characteristics of these things which are, you know, it's good to play on, I suppose, if you like. Um, so. They definitely will um, hop into nest boxes, um, and often a female will take charge of one and um, and hunt the other birds away. And I think that is n not a good thing. So we like to provide them with a sheltered place um, that's high in the enclosure. They like to roost well up in the enclosure. Like to set up a perch, and then maybe. Um, some tea tree or something that are branches, um, something that's not absolutely, uh, you know, impervious like the walls of a, a hollow log, um, but something that just provides a, a barrier like a curtain, I suppose, um, and shields them from, um, you know, the direct gaze of um, potential predators at night. Um, that makes them feel most comfortable. So that's the sort of... Uh, the, the sort of um, roost site we like to set up, some perch high in the enclosure that's, uh, that's somewhat shielded by the leaves of, um, of uh, non-toxic plants. You mentioned night. Let's talk about day as well. Um, any comments on lighting and, and what you recommend? Yeah, good, good call, Brendan. Um, and here in Australia, we're blessed. We really are that um, for most of our uh pets we can somehow arrange them arrange for them to have fairly decent exposure to direct sunlight um, and I think it is uh, you know part of the normal um, 
husbandry, healthy husbandry uh, for most of our species to have that um, access to direct sunlight. And it's important if we have those birds in um, indoors that we realise that they won't get uh, the benefit of direct sunlight through glass, um, but uh, great parts of the sunlight are filtered out by glass. Um, but I think um, that, that uh, it is... Um, pretty important to get that exposure in. I think also it's pretty important to, um, you know, match the day length. I think a lot of the problems, the health problems that we get, particularly the reproductive ones, are exacerbated by excessive day length. And so birds that have a normal day and then sit up with us in the evening in the artificial light of our lounge rooms, those birds are much, much more difficult to control the reproductive problems that they might develop. Yes. Okay. Very good. <laughs> um, what's the average lifespan of a pet budgie? Well, this is another great question, Brendan. You are just full of them tonight. Um, <laughs> the, the average lifespan in the wild of um, budgerigars is probably something between five and seven years. Um, and I think our um, domestic domesticated versions of uh, the budgerigar, they definitely um, they definitely age at the same rate. Um, and, but the interesting thing about uh, desert species in captive environment situations, um, particularly those domesticated ones, is that I reckon they have a vastly extended potential senior life stage. So our captive birds still, you know, go through the, the juvenile, young adult, adult, older adult phase over you know, the sort of five to seven years, six, six plus or minus a little bit. But um, they can live as geriatric birds for quite a long time. And we do have a couple of budgerigars that are approaching um, uh, 20 years of age. Uh, so they, and, and of course, that extended geriatric life stage um, does make them, you know, exposes them to the diseases of their senior years, particularly cancers, which is, you know, one of the things we commonly see with budgerigars. Yes. And I'm always amazed at many of the common unusual pet species, how we still haven't got a great handle on on their supposed average lifespan of the mark. You know, the birds, the reptiles, the small mammals even, or maybe not quite as much with the small mammals, but some of these birds and reptiles that, you know, are potentially a lot longer live than we, than we think and um, this you know the, the quotes that people have for the average lifespan for some of them vary wildly don't they um, for for some of the, some of them so um, not that not that I'm talking about the budget in particular but it just made me think of that well, um, it's true and and it is it's an interesting comment that um, that the hard life they live in the wild um, and the nature of the way they breed and um, the pressure that's put on them and and the you know the the it's they live in the desert they it's tough and so um they are a, a rapid growth rapid breed build up to large numbers very quickly and then big die offs um but um but yeah i reckon that um uh i reckon that um it's a uh, that in the appropriate circumstance where they have great quality care and good nutrition and excellent health care, that um, they can live for quite a long time as senior birds. Now, we're going to briefly touch on a couple of the common conditions that we see. We won't go into detail about, about the treatment of them. And um, last week we covered reproductive problems in, in avian species um, as a full podcast, um, but as as an intro to that, Mark, when, when do you start recommending to clients, as generally not just with budgies, to do um, some of the preventative health things like, for instance, um, when would you say it's time to do full bloods on your budgie, um, let's get a baseline for your budgie and it's time to run a, a routine um, faecal check on your on your bird? What's your general general thoughts with that and when do you, when do you suggest we do that for the clients? Well, I think there's no sort of widely accepted you know general across the um across the veterinary industry recommendation i know that at our hospital we would routinely recommend that the birds be um examined every 6 months that um that we think that waiting for 12 months is um 
he's a little bit too long between visits, we regularly, um, each of those visits should be accompanied by an assessment of internal and external parasites and the assessment of internal parasites is by a, um, a, a faecal analysis. Yes. And faecal analysis also gives us good clues about patterns of digestion and and uh, um, and, and and there are a number of particularly organisms like um, uh, the one that leaps to mind is Macrorhabdus ornithogaster, the um, megabacteria fungus. We um, we see that quite regularly with um, budgerigars, and it, and it does cause a chronic wasting disease. And if it can be picked up uh, earlier before the birds are run down, it um, is eminently treatable. So um, so that. Uh, that's our sort of general tactic. We do like the idea that once the birds get to about six years of age that we have some baseline uh, blood numbers um, and certainly we're always keen to um, uh, to run those. There's panels of um, DNA PCR tests for the common uh, viral diseases that um, are often useful, but we tend to pick those out once we've got a bird that um, in a collection that might show a problem rather than using them routinely. Yes. Now I'm going to throw a bit of a spanner here <laughs> before we finish. Um, what about gram stains? Well, I don't think that's too much of... Well, I hope it's not too much of a spanner, but um, uh, we, we definitely do perform gram stains. We like being able to uh, to perform them. But I think the we do definitely don't perform them routinely on healthy birds. Um, we tend to look at, um, at gram stains when it gets to be uh, when we have a sick bird. Um, I, I think I'm pretty happy to, um, to say that uh, most avian veterinarians uh, have come to the conclusion that gram stains in healthy birds are... Uh, of minimal um, uh, diagnostic utility, and they're probably not a good screening test for us. Yes, and that's for our for our listeners who who don't realise. Uh, I suppose controversy or controversy is not necessarily the right word, but um, there's a lot of, been a lot of debate about um, gram stains over the years. From it used to be at one stage it was sort of the be on on end all, and you could a bit like reading tea leaves, wasn't it, Mark? You could um, detect anything or and everything with a gram stain on a bird. And um, then when once people started looking at it a bit more scientifically, that, that perhaps it wasn't giving indication for for um, everything um, that might be going on in that particular individual. So that's why I wanted to throw throw this particular topic in there. So, yes, yeah, sorry, I've interrupted enough, so go, go on. Um, so, it, with the, so, so basically your summary there is um, for, for a well bird, we don't, we don't bother doing a routine gram stain, but what is the value for an unwell bird? Well, the, the, and I think this is another important thing in, you know, the controversy of the gram stain. Um, I think it is important to... Um, to make a little bit of, you've got to use your um, your, uh, your your physical exam and other information about the the uh, fecal sample. You've got to decide whether you have a primarily primarily gastrointestinal disease, um, and whether then you've got to decide whether um, a bacterial infection is uh, um, causative or whether it's um, uh, the result of other changes. And and definitely in um, any of these. Uh, desert species, the cockatiels and, and budgerigars, we definitely see uh, pancreatic disease once they've been on very, very high-quality, high-fat diets for long periods of time. Um, and and certainly that maldigestion that can arise post a pancreatic episode, um, that, that can result in uh, changes to the bacterial flora of the gut. But doing the gram stain can give you guidance, um, but it uh, you have to use all those other uh, bits of diagnostic and clinical information to make sense of it, Brendan. Let me turn myself off mute as usual, and I had clicked off, but it, it, I did a double click, so I'd put myself back on mute. Um, I have to do it at least once an episode, don't I, Mark? Um, so, yeah, let's just... Very briefly, Mark, can you just mention 
not go into detail, mention off the top of your head some of the common conditions you see in pet partridge. Well, we definitely uh, see that we've talked about some of those parasite problems. We talked about megabacteria. We also see um, trichomonas is a, a very common one for us to see as well, and so that's a good one to keep an eye out for under the microscope. They are reproductive nightmares, um, and so... Uh, we'll definitely see chronic egg layers, we'll see dystochias, egg binding, and we'll definitely see uh, egg yolk coelomidides in these birds as well. We, um, particularly in the birds that uh, have been on bad diets, they, um, they regularly will develop pancreatic and liver disease, and it might be the only external um, thing that you can find is uh, uh, overgrowth of the, uh, the beak and inappropriate growth of the nails. Um, and uh, because the liver processes the amino acids that go into creating keratin and the altered keratin from a damaged liver might not wear or function normally, um, uh, those elongated, uh, particularly the overgrowth, a straight overgrowth of a beak will always alert us to the possibility of liver disease. Um, and as I said before, we definitely see um, a lot of a big variety of neoplasias, and some of them are amenable to surgical um, treatment, some of them to medical treatment, and some are really bad. We always um, shed a tear when we uh, develop a uh, find a bird that uh, we're um, we're seeing um, renal adenocarcinoma, a common presentation in an aged bird where it begins to lose the the uh, the, the ability to use one of its um. Uh, its hind legs um, and uh, one of its legs and um, that paralysis that develops unilaterally is often associated with the damage that um, the invasive and ulcerative uh, renal adenocarcinomas can do and those birds rarely survive um, six, eight or ten weeks after they start to lose the function of that leg. Yes. How are you diagnosing those, Mark? Well, we look for the, you know, obviously try to rule out any other reason that the leg might be becoming paralysed. And then we're looking um, radiographically and endoscopically to uh, give us clues about uh, what's going on about those nerve roots, the cytic nerve root up near the kidney and gonads. Um, and sometimes... What about endoscope? Uh, sorry, uh, ultrasound. What about ultrasound? Well, any we were luck? talking about um, earlier in the podcast about whacking those onto birds yes. and... Um, uh, onto chickens, but um, I, to, I have to be completely honest and say that the the uh, size of budgerigars and the significant in in birds that don't have a, a, an effusion, a, a coelomic effusion of some sort or another, it is very difficult to get useful ultrasound images in these birds. So we are depending much more on endoscopy to look at the kidneys and see if they've uh, they've got evidence of an adenocarcinoma. And one final question um, before we close. So with, with um, this particular condition, what do you then put those patients on, those terminal patients, if the client isn't quite ready to say goodbye to them? Um, what sort of pain relief... Or other um, medications do you um, place that bird on? Well, it, it's difficult, Brendan, um, and we definitely have some patients who are who are on various opioids and um, transmucosal absorption of these opioids is a recognised thing in birds. Um, obviously, if they have opioids that they um, that uh, get to the stomach and and uh, digested, then first pass metabolism will, you know, the liver will render them useless. Um, we have used tramadol in a number of these birds, but I've got to say that um, the quality of life uh, measure is most noticeably maintained or improved when we use um, meloxicam. And I know, I have to be honest and say, I know that uh, there's probably um, yes. that we're putting an already stressed kidney under more pressure. Um, but I think in these birds, once we're satisfied that um, that their fate is, uh, is um, defined, um, 
where our, our target is not so much to worry about um, what happens to the kidney, but just to make sure the time that the birds are with us is fine. And look, to be honest, um, we don't, I can't tell you that, we definitely see some, you know, you've got to be careful anytime you use non-steroidals in, um, uh, in any patient um, and worry about the risks to the kidney. But this is not one where we see a significant problem. And I think most of the birds um, that have renal adenocarcinoma, most of the budgerigars, um, they end up being euthanized before they get into kidney problems because of the meloxicam. Well, on that um, that bright note, Mark, Mr. Outro is here, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Mm